Um, so as uh, Mike said, my name is Drew, um, and I've been serving at Grace uh, since 2007, um, and I'm really excited to be here with you all today. Um, we're almost at the end of the year, and even though most of those holiday parties and wintertime activities are behind us, there's a few that are still actually open to do, and the one that I'm thinking of um, is ice skating. Did, any, did anyone go ice skating this season, like at one of those kind of like pop-up ones? No? Okay, that's okay. I, I didn't grow up in a place that was cold enough to have snow or ice, and so the, my only experience growing up with ice skating was when it would show up at the mall, you know, like once a year or something like that. Um, and, and because my favorite movie growing up was The Mighty Ducks, has anyone seen this, this, this wonderful clarion of film, spectacular, you know, just savant directing. Um, but I wanted to be one of those cool kids that would skate up and then turn on my side and spray the ice like onto my brother or maybe onto my mom and then skate away knowing just how cool I looked doing it, right? You know, but when you start learning how to skate, you don't realize how slippery it is. And just standing up, standing still, you start to move. And if you overcorrect a little bit, then bam, you're just on your butt a lot. Like when you learn to skate, you're actually learning how to get up from a sore bottom more than not. And, you know, then you then you start getting some movement and you overcorrect and bam, you're down on the ice again. You know, and so you have to realize that actually in order to go forward, you need to lean forward just a little bit while you're skating, and that's how you do it. And then you get pretty sure of yourself and confident and re relax, relax yourself, and then bam, you're down on the ice again. Exactly, you know? And uh, so today I want us to be thinking about this posture of leaning forward just a little bit as we're uh, going through the scriptures today. Grace Church has been going through Luke's gospel account of the Christian story this whole month. And so we're going to continue there with a story that picks up right after Jesus was born. And so if you have your Bibles handy, you can open up to Luke chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible handy, it'll be on the screen as well. You can probably find it on an app somewhere. Um, but we're going to be in Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 21. And so we're going to read this passage all the way through, um, all the way up to verse 40. And then we're going to come back and kind of dig in to different parts. So let's start and read together. Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 21. On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise the child, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he was conceived. And when the time came for purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves, or two young pigeons. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon, who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus, Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. And then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, this child 
is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. There is also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Penuel of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. And when Mary and Joseph had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. And as the child grew and became strong, he was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was on him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So our passage opens up with uh, some details about what Mary and Joseph did right after Jesus was born. And as was the custom for God-fearing Jews, they circumcised him on the eighth day, and they gave him the name that the angel had told them to name him. See, Mary and Joseph had both been willing participants of God's plan, and they continued their partnership with him by following through on what God had told them to do. But they were also good Jews. They followed the rituals and the traditions passed down to them. That's why they waited the appropriate amount of time until after Mary was clean again after giving birth. And if you look at the footnote in your Bible, it'll take it to Leviticus chapter 12. You'll find out that you got to wait 33 days after a boy is born and, and circumcised for the mother to be declared clean again. So this is about a little over a month after Jesus is born. The young couple treks the five and a half miles from Bethlehem to Jerusalem to do what they're supposed to do um, in the traditions of their, their context. And they do the ceremonial presenting of their firstborn at the temple. They offer sacrifices for Mary's purification after childbirth. And so in these first few verses, we actually learn two major things about Mary and Joseph. The first thing that we learn is that they are faithful to the traditions handed down to them in worshiping God. And it's not as important for us to actually focus on what they did, like, oh, are we supposed to follow these traditions? Should we be doing these same types of ceremonies? Because Luke is actually focusing on why they did it. They're being faithful to these traditions because they're trying to worship God and that was how people worshipped God that way in that time. So they're being faithful in their context, in their culture. The second thing that we learned about Mary and Joseph is that they're poor. Because if you find out and look up other notes in here when it's talking about the sacrifice they offer, they offer the sacrifice of two birds rather than a more expensive young lamb. And so we go, okay, this is a, a humble couple from humble means, and they are in humble service to God. And then we get introduced to the next character of our story, Simeon. Now, Simeon is described as righteous and devout, or you could translate it that as upright and God-fearing. Now, his reputation is of someone who is expectantly waiting for God's rescue of Israel. He's expectantly waiting for the, the consolation of Israel, the, the comfort, the rescue. And Luke is focusing not on his credentials, but on his character, focusing on the Holy Spirit's guidance of Simeon, because we hear that the Holy Spirit had revealed to Simeon something incredible, that he would see the Messiah. And then we actually see that day, the Holy Spirit guides Simeon to the temple to meet this young couple. And this is cool to me because it actually kind of shows how God orchestrated 
and choreographed this whole thing, right? Like God is working through the Jewish traditions and rituals to guide Mary and Joseph to be there at that, just that time. And then he's working directly through his spirit with Simeon to make sure that he arrives at the exact same time because God made this meeting happen. But the cool thing is that wouldn't work without willing participants. And so it's so amazing to me that God treats us humans with such dignity that he actively works in our world, but he works with partners and willing partnership of humans to work out his plans. And so then they meet and Simeon takes the baby in his arms and praises God with this beautiful poetic song that recounts how God has promised him that he would see the Lord's Messiah in his lifetime. And then the thing that Simeon had been waiting for, this this consolation, this comfort of Israel, this longing thing that he's been longing for his whole life has finally come, and now he feels he can depart in peace. And this thing that he's been hungering for, it says it in uh, verse 30 through 32. We could, we could read it again. It says, it's the salvation that the Lord has promised, salvation prepared in the sight of all nations, a light of revelation to the Gentiles, and the glory of your people, Israel. Simeon's been waiting for God's comfort, his rescue of Israel. But this isn't the type of rescue that some people would have expected, right? Like a baby? That's what's going to rescue us from the Roman centurions and those taxes? That is not what I expected. See, in the past, Israel had been rescued by God many times. They were in slavery in Egypt, and God rescued them out of slavery, and that involved miracles and plagues and splitting seas. And that rescue, it didn't quite go as some people had thought it might. And so that's why they ended up spending so much time in the desert learning how to become God's people. But then they got to the promised land. And that involved victorious battles that were miracles and and falling pillars of clouds and pillars of fire. And then that didn't go so well either because they got caught up with those neighboring nations and the armies and stuff. And so then God rescued them again by sending over and over again, these leaders, these judges, to rescue them and raise them and and bring them back to God. But that wasn't the rescue they wanted because they wanted a king just like those other nations. But then when those kings ended up leading the people away from God, they got defeated and captured by Babylon, taken away into exile, away from their homes, longing for rescue again. And so God rescued them and brought them back from exile to their hometown, but they just, they couldn't get away from being caught up with other nations and bending under the weight of occupation. And now they are under the oppression of Rome and everyone's still waiting for that long-awaited Messiah to come and rescue them. But Simeon knows that God's rescue is going to be more than just getting rid of the Romans. See, Simeon connects back to prophecies from Isaiah that remind Israel that the whole purpose of being the people of God, the whole point is that they aren't the object of God's grace and affection. They aren't the bucket that catches it and holds it. They're meant to be the conduit of God's blessing. They're blessed to be a blessing. That's what it means to be God's chosen people. And so that's why Simeon explicitly points out the move towards the Gentile nations. He says it's it's to be a light of revelation to the Gentiles. See, it's not that God has had enough with that Israel and he's moving on to the Gentiles. No, it's that he's calling Israel back 
to their initial purpose, to be God's people and to bless the whole world by pointing everyone back to God. And it's incredible to me, I don't know what you think about this, but it's incredible to me that it's this devout Jewish elder, right? Like this elder statesman. He's the one in the story that is proclaiming at the beginning of Jesus' life to everyone that can hear that the whole aim of God's Messiah is to offer salvation to everyone. It's not just to get one group back to their former glory. God's plan is to invite everyone into the kingdom of God. And this is declared out loud in the middle of the temple in Jerusalem as if God orchestrated this whole thing so that everyone who's within earshot would realize that coming to the temple, the whole point of the temple is to be a blessing to the nations. The whole point of worshiping God is to spread the good news of the kingdom of God to everyone. See, showing up to worship God isn't supposed to be an end. This morning is a kickstart for the rest of our life of worship so that everyone may know the love of God. And now some of you are nodding along going, yep, uh uh-huh. We know this, Pastor Drew. We've read John 3.16. Thank you for the refresher on what Jesus was there for. (laughs) But at the time, this was crazy for anyone else who would have been listening. The idea of God's salvation for anyone other than the Jews? No, that's crazy talk. Even Mary and Joseph are taken aback. We read that they they marveled at what Simeon said. They're astounded. They're astonished. They, they have, they're amazed that the, the idea that God's plan through this little baby that they've been taking care of for the last month, that's what the plan is. And, and you got to remember, I mean, both Mary and Joseph, they've had these angelic messages directly to them. And they had these smelly shepherds show up the night that Jesus was born and confirm to them what some other angels had told them, confirming what they had heard. And now here's this guy in the temple saying all this stuff. And they're going, oh, wait, like, Seriously? Like, this is serious. We didn't just imagine all that. Oh, okay. This is crazy. The declaration of just how far-reaching God's salvation is, it just confounds them. And as if Simeon knew how controversial this is, right? He immediately turns to Mary and Joseph and declares that Jesus will indeed cause controversy. He'll be spoken against. He'll cause upheaval. He's going to reveal the true thoughts and motivations of those around him, unveiling and exposing everyone in his light. And this won't just cause frustration to others. It's actually going to also be a sword that pierces Mary's own heart, foreshadowing the cross that was to come. But before Mary and Joseph can fully reflect on what Simeon has just said to them, another character enters our story, the prophet Anna, who had devoted her life to worshiping God after becoming a widow. And Luke gives us these details about Simeon and Anna because he's, he's helping us understand how reliable these faithful people were. What they declare about Jesus is to be taken seriously. See, so far in Jesus' short life, we've heard from angels, we've heard from shepherds, we've heard now from reliable Jewish elders, this is the plan that God is bringing to bear through Jesus. And then Anna probably becomes the first ever Christian corner preacher because she goes and says to everyone who would listen about God's plan of redemption through his Messiah. And she has spent the majority of her life worshiping God, fasting, praying. Now that she's seen his Messiah, she's not done. She's not retired. No. She responds by going and spreading the good news that she has witnessed. Sorry to burst your bubble about retirement. 
But the thing I actually want to focus on is, is just the depiction of faithfulness in the story, right? Like it is a, it's a beautiful example of faithfulness. Mary and Joseph are faithful partners with God's plan. They're faithful to follow the traditions and the, the, the rituals and cultures of their time. Simeon, he's been faithfully waiting on God to bring rescue, even in the face of how everything around him seems to be getting worse and worse. Because in Simeon's time, when Jesus was born, there's many Jews who were waiting for God's rescue. And many of them got fed up with waiting. They thought they were waiting too long, and they decided to side with the strength of Rome. And others who got fed up with waiting decided to take matters into their own hands and to organize uprisings in rebellion against Rome. But Simeon and Anna wait in faith. And their waiting is rewarded because they are the ones who get to receive the presented Messiah at the temple. I mean, do you realize that there's no high priests that receive Jesus? There's no temple officials, right? It is just Simeon and Anna, these two normal, faithful followers of God. They're not official, but they embody sincere faith. And that's the sort of thing that God looks to highlight. See, faithfulness is all over our story today. And our passage ends with a short description of the fact that Mary and Joseph, when they faithfully finish everything required by the law of the Lord, uh, they return to Nazareth. And the child, whom this passage revolves completely around, even though he doesn't do anything in this story, but everything is about the child, is said to grow in wisdom and maturity and strength and grace, has the same grace that God bestowed on all the other faithful partners in our story so far. And so as we reflect on this passage, I want to focus on waiting in faith. This past year and a half has involved a lot of waiting, hasn't it? A lot more than I've ever remembered. And, and I'm sure we could pull the room. We could get a whole bunch of different examples of things that we're waiting for. You know, some people are waiting for things to get back to normal, right? Some people are just waiting for a certain level of safety. Others are waiting for everyone to just wake up and move on. Come on. This is life now. And others are just sick of waiting. What is it that you find yourself waiting for in this season? Or maybe a better way to put it would be, what are you hoping for? What are you longing for? Some people I've talked to are hoping and longing for a return to greatness. Right? Like they, they look back and they remember a time when they felt that life was better. The community was better. The church was bigger. The neighborhood was friendlier. I remember those days. And they relate a lot with the Jews who just wanted God to just get rid of those oppressive rulers over us so we can have the freedom to be in charge of our own lives again. They understand that feeling. Other people I've talked to are uh, hoping and longing for a return to normal, right? They're just worn down by all the change, all the uncertainty. They miss friends that they haven't seen in a long time. They miss the life that they were leading. I mean, sure, parts of life weren't all that great. I mean, some parts of life weren't all that good, but they definitely didn't feel like they were flourishing in every area of life that God wanted them to. But it was normal. It's what we're used to. Can we just get back to that? Please. Now, as I've been personally reflecting on this, I've been asking myself if I'm waiting, if I'm hoping or longing for my life to get better, or am I longing for 
God's kingdom to expand more in my life. And if, if I'm honest, I spend a lot of time longing for things to get back to normal because it's what I'm comfortable with. It's what I like. I've been wanting God to rescue us from this time of uncertainty. Rescue us from the ups and the downs and the steps back for every step forward. But how do we respond when the rescue is different than we expected? See, the Jews were hoping for rescue from the biggest danger to their life, the Romans, right? But God came as Jesus to rescue them from the actual danger to life, death itself. The rescuer that God sent had a different plan than everyone had thought. See, we see it over and over again in how people responded to Jesus, how his, his own disciples didn't even quite get it. And I see it over and over again in my own life, how I resist where God is leading because I'd rather push for a story that makes me the hero or, or at least helps me have my happy ending with my comfortable life. But what about when the rescue that we're longing for is different than we expected. We want God to reform our church. We want God to transform our community. And so far, we've gotten Zoom Bible studies, driveway cocktail hour. We gather with less people than we used to. Is this part of God's plan? Is he reforming us? Is he working through this? Or is he distant? I don't know about you, but sometimes I'm sick of waiting. And sometimes I'm not sure if I trust that God is working through all this. But that's not the kind of waiting that Simeon and Anna did. They waited in faith. They put their trust in God, even if it meant that the rescue was different than they had expected. So how do we wait in faith? What does faithfulness even look like for us today? There's a, a, a bumper sticker saying that um, it's not new, but I've heard it more in the last probably year and a half than I've ever heard it before. I wonder if you've heard this bumper sticker saying before. Faith over fear. Has that been like a recent one for you that, that popped up a lot more for you to see? Now, I don't know the original intention of it. I could be wrong, but I think the point that the statement faith over fear is trying to get at is, is don't sit back and waste away in fear, but to lean forward in faith. I like that. But recently it seems like that phrase gets thrown around in a spirit of defiance, right? Rather than a call to return to faith in God, it sounds more like a retort that's tossed over someone's shoulder as they walk by and go on with whatever they were doing before. It sounds a whole lot more like the Jews who got fed up with waiting and decided to take matters into their own hands. And don't misunderstand me, okay, really? I'm not trying to throw anyone under the bus here. I mean, we have to remember one of Jesus' own disciples was a zealot, one of the insurgent uprisers who got called to be Jesus' disciple along with the guy who was in Rome's pocket, okay? Like, nothing disqualifies you from being called to join Jesus and follow him, okay? That's not what I'm saying. But if faith isn't just a retort, and what is it? What does faithfulness in God look like? I mean, do we simply commit ourselves to just sit and pray? Does waiting in faith just look like 
waiting around? I don't think so. I think, I don't think that faithfully waiting on the Lord is passive. It's not wistful. It's not nostalgic. Faithfulness is leaning forward, not sitting back. But it's not just activity for the sake of activity. Faithfulness that leans forward into God, it requires a different posture. And so I want to offer you just three things that I think would be helpful as we think about this. Faithfully waiting on the Lord is, first, expectant. We are expectant that God is at work, that he'll continue to bring about his plans for our good because we're able to look back at how he's acted in the past. So waiting in faith is expectant and trusting in God's future work because He's proven himself to be faithful in the past. We've seen how he's acted in the past. We know the stories from the Bible of his faithful action. We, we have our own stories of how God has worked in our life or in the lives of others around us. So we expect him to continue to act on behalf of the least. We expect him to continue to call everyone to him. We expect him to continue to serve in sacrificial love because of how he has demonstrated himself to act in the past. See, waiting in faith isn't sitting back. It's leaning forward expectantly. But second, waiting in faith is also attentive. It isn't passive, waiting for someone to come tap us on the shoulder. Waiting in faith involves attentively looking for where God is at work. Praying continually, growing our ability to listen to God's voice. It involves watching for clues of God's heart listening for opportunities to join God in his work, getting up and following where God is leading in the situations around us. Simeon and Anna would not have been part of her story if they weren't attentively looking for where God was calling them. See, waiting in faith is expectant of God's future work, it's attentive to God's current action, and it's committed. Waiting in faith involves staying committed to God, not losing interest, not falling asleep, not just, you know, sitting this one out. Because we're staying convinced that God has a good plan because he's a good father. We're committed because we're still convinced that Jesus is the savior we need. He is the perfect king to follow. He is the one to give our allegiance to. So we stay committed to him. See, faithfulness to God, even in a time of waiting, involves leaning forward into God, not sitting back. And so, as we reflect on this current period of waiting that we find ourselves in, as we look forward to a new year, I want to ask you a question. Do you feel like you are growing forward right now? Or is a closer description that you're waiting and withering? God created us for partnership with him. The very core of our being yearns to partner in obedience with God's work of restoration in the world. See, we weren't created to be passive. We aren't meant to sit back and be taken care of as if we're being babysat. We find our greatest purpose, our greatest potential when we join God in his mission of reconciliation when we are working to heal what's wounded, to make whole what's broken. That's 
when we come alive. I don't know, does that make you sit forward? Does that speak to you? Is that something that you want to recommit to this year? See, Pastor Joel and Pastor Chris have been committed to this. They've been attempting to lead us out of different experiments of following God's promptings. See, they led that prayer class that was hosted here for a couple weeks. It's helping us all learn how to become more attentive to God's voice. There's rumors that that might be offered again in the near future, so, you know, if that interests you. But they've also been showing us ways to lean forward and stay expectant of what God is doing in this season. So I wonder for each of us, what if, what if each of us committed to just trying an experiment in faithful action in this new year? Like, how would that change our two communities of grace and radiant? How would that affect the neighborhoods where we live? If, if just each of us just, just tried an experiment of leaning forward into God's work, what kind of change will we see in our own families? See, the incredible thing about such a creative God is that he made each of us so uniquely that he's able to create redemption and healing through each of us in so many different ways. And so we don't all have to pick the same experiment, right? Like, but what if we just chose an experiment to try? Like, what if we just committed, I don't know, to 30 days of daily prayer, right? Like, it could be on the way to work instead of listening to talk radio. Or it could be walking around your neighborhood each night. Like, what if you prayed to God and asked for wisdom each day? What if that's your experiment? Like, how would that transform you? Or what if you tried an experiment where you just pick one of the Gospels, like Luke or, I don't know, Mark or something like that, and you committed to try and do the things that Jesus does, right? Like, just start reading and read until you find Jesus doing something and then stop and then ask God, God, how could 